0: So for tonight, uh, we will be in Psalm 2. So please turn there and read along with me. I'll give you a couple seconds to, to get there. It's Psalm chapter 2. I'll be reading uh, to you from God's word out of the New King James Version. Follow along as I read the text to you. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of your word. And uh, we pray that, Lord, as we go through the scriptures together, that you would encourage us by the text, by the truth of it. Lord, especially as we talk about things to come, in regard to the second coming of Christ and his kingdom, Lord, we look forward to it. We anticipate it. Our world obviously needs it. And, uh, and Lord, but also we need to be prepared for it. So work in our hearts, we pray. And Lord, we also um, thank you that so many, in of our ch- so many in our church who have been sick, Lord, that they are finding relief. We pray that you would continue to minister to their bodies. And Lord, that you would bring us back together quickly for fellowship so we might call upon your name. And Lord, we, we thank you for Dan, Jacob, and uh, the blessing that he was to us as a body. Lord, to many of us individually, just his servant's heart, his joy, his contribution, Lord, his friendship. We thank you, Lord, that he's now with you, that he's beyond his pain. And um, yeah, so thank you, Lord. Uh, we just love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, this uh, particular psalm, Psalm 2, fits into a category of psalms called the regal or royal psalms, for it is fitting for a king, but not just any king will do as the text will reveal. Uh, Like the very first psalm, Psalm 2 has no introduction. Uh, The author, or the Holy Spirit rather, mentions no author, at least not here but he does reveal the author's identity later in the text of Scripture. We find it uh, actually in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4, verse 24 through 26, where the apostles are, are celebrating. And they say, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said... Why did the nations rage, and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. That's Acts 4:24 through26. And so of course, uh, the apostles there are quoting Psalm 2 verses one through two. And there in Acts 4:25, the Holy Spirit attributes authorship to David. And so, really, any intelligent debate over the author's identity of Psalm 2 is settled by this attribution. And to arrive at any other conclusion is a subtle rejection of divine inspiration regarding the Scriptures. It denies that the apostles were under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is nonsense. Also, in the text here, there's an argument for the what we would call the mechanism of divine inspiration. Notice how the Holy Spirit, it says, used David's mouth to speak his words. The text says, you are God who by the mouth of David said, why do the nations rage and so forth? So David was used as the Holy Spirit's mouthpiece. God spoke through the instrumentation of his servant. And David himself even said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue, Second Samuel 23, verse 2. Also, Jesus referred to David as a prophet and as one who prophesied by the Holy Spirit. It's mentioned in Matthew 22, verse 43, and again in Mark 12, verse 36. So this royal psalm, this regal psalm, was written by David, but unlike many of his psalms, it wasn't about David, just like... Um, Well, we'll get to those later, but another important detail about Psalm 2 is the frequency by which it's quoted in the New Testament. Uh, There are at least seven quotations. Verse 1 and 2 is quoted in, as we've already said, Acts 4, uh, 25 through 26. Verse 7 of Psalm 2 is quoted in Acts 13, 35, also in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, and again in Hebrews 5, verse 5. Verse nine is quoted in Revelation 2 verse 26 through 27 verse, or chapter 12, verse five, and again in chapter 19, verse five. Psalm two is quoted with greater frequency than just about any other chapter in the Old Testament. It also uh, alluded to a number of the times when, uh, or in, it's, it's alluded to in the Gospels a number of times. For instance, when we hear the Father saying on different occasions, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This occurs four times at least, uh, beginning in Matthew 3.17, Jesus' baptism. We see it in Matthew 17.5, in Mark 1.11, and Luke 3.22. So the New Testament authors made good use of Psalm 2. Um, And in this psalm, this regal psalm, it's not simply a description of who the king is, which is Messiah, who is Christ, but also of what he will do and then also what the world ought to do because of who he is and what he is going to do. The psalm has what we would say eschatological significance. It, It points to the end times beginning with Israel's rejection of Messiah and then ending with his future invasion of earth and his subsequent earthly reign. So the psalm begins with the rebellion of the nations, verses one through three. This is for your outline. And then the Lord's response to these nations, verses four through five. And then comes the Lord's decree, verses six through nine. And finally the Messiah's earthly reign, verses 10 through 12. John quotes Psalm two, eight through nine on three different occasions in the book of Revelation demonstrating that there will be this future earthly reign of the Messiah. Uh, Here in Psalm two, there are four references to the kingdom itself that John was looking forward to. It says in verse six that he will reign from Zion, Verse 8 says that he will reign over all of the earth, and because of opposition, he will have to rule with an iron scepter, verse 9, but his kingdom will succeed, verse 12. We'll talk about all of these things as we go through the text. So there's your introduction, your outline. Let's look at it verse by verse. First, the rebellion of the nations, verse 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, because of how the Holy Spirit applies these three verses in Acts 4.27, we must say that it's the, this particular part of it, its fulfillment occurred when Herod... Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles with the Jewish people rejected Christ and crucified him. Uh, This obviously cannot fulfill all of Psalm 2 because it speaks the end there of his victory. Here we have his death, the end we have his victory. So the Psalm has at least two separate fulfillments in history. But regarding this rejection of Messiah, David says that their rage their plotting, their opposition, and all of their worldly counsel, he calls it a vain thing. It, it, it proved to be worthless, at least for what they intended. It didn't serve their purpose, but actually ends up serving the very purposes of God. It, as we know, it was through Jesus' death, which his enemies perceived as his loss, that actually brought life. Jesus' death was God's means to victory over death. So their schemes fulfilled God's predetermined purposes. Kind of addressing this interesting dynamic of uh, God's predetermination and, 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 and man's evil, Peter says it plainly like this. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Acts 2, 22 through 24. So the death of Christ It says here in the text, was God's predetermined purpose, but it was accomplished by the lawless hands of men. So we might say that before time began, God appointed through his predetermining foreknowledge to have Jesus delivered over to death and to raise him up again in order to loose the pains of death. But then in time, it was man's wicked purpose to kill him and be rid of him. But of course, nothing can thwart the purposes of God. In Luke 19, speaking in this whole regard, when Jesus told the parable of the 10 minus, he may have had Psalm 2 verse 3 in mind where he expresses the attitude of the religious leaders toward the Messiah. He communicates their desire saying, the Pharisees saying, we will not have this man to rule over us. Luke 19, 14. But how the Jewish people... And the nations felt and do feel about Jesus, did not, and will never deter God's purposes. Their rebellion will only stir God's wrathful response, verse 4 through 5. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. So at their rebellion, the king of heaven, David says, he will laugh, he will deride them, now, in the scriptures, laughing and deriven, derision often mean to laugh someone to scorn. It, it means to mock them. For, for what is the rebellion of man to the mighty King of heaven? That's the idea. D- do they intend to intimidate him, to overthrow him? The idea is laughable. In verse 5, it says that God will speak and distress these rebels with his wrath and his deep displeasure. Deep displeasure really means his burning wrath. So, While God is not intimidated by man's rebellion, the wickedness of man does merit God's righteous anger. Rebellion does earn a just response from a holy God. And here his response begins in the text with a decree, verse six through nine. God says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So God has established. He has enthroned the very king that man has rejected, the king that they crucified. And this king will reign from the very place they crucified him, from Mount Zion, And as predicted, Christ will sit on the throne of his father David in Jerusalem, and the very thing that they crucified Jesus for will be the very thing declared and celebrated at his coronation, which is his sonship to his father, as it says in verse 7. And in verse 8, the father tells his firstborn, his only begotten, to make his request which the Father says, I will grant to you for an inheritance, both the nations and the ends of the earth for your possession. This, this is a very interesting statement because currently the nations and the earth are ruled over by Satan. He's the God of this world. Paul says he's the prince of the power of the air. John says the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. And so for God the Father to promise all of this to God the Son must make Satan a little nervous, even though Satan is so arrogant and self-confident. But it's not just this promise in Psalm 2 that makes Satan nervous. Some 400 years after David penned these words, a king from Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream that of course Daniel interpreted for him which predicts the fulfillment of God's promise here in Psalm 2. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream he saw a multi-metallic statue. It had a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and then feet that were mingled with iron and clay. Each section of the statue represented a real kingdom in its historical sequence. The head of gold represented the Babylonian Empire. The chest and arms of silver represented the Medo-Persian Empire. The belly and thighs, the Grecian Empire. The legs of iron, the Roman Empire. And the feet of iron and clay represent the Roman Empire mingled with something else or perhaps a weaker version of itself. These were all literal kingdoms that followed one another in exact sequence in history. And all of them, as we see in Daniel 10, were under the authority of Satan. Now, so far, this portion of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, along with Daniel's interpretation, only affirmed Satan's confidence. But that's not all that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. He also saw a stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, meaning that it was not a man-made thing, unlike the kingdoms represented in the statue. And this stone came off the mountain, and it crushes all of the other kingdoms, after which the stone grows into this great mountain and then covers the earth. Daniel says that this rock is a kingdom, the kingdom that the God of heaven will set up, and it shall never be destroyed never left to other people, but will stand forever. That's Daniel 2, 35, and then 44, verses 44 through 45. Now, without question, this is the messianic kingdom. Christ is the stone cut out of the mountain. Now, if all those other kingdoms were literal, earthly kingdoms, it only makes sense that this last kingdom is a literal, visible, earthly kingdom. And for the sake of consistency, and the perspicuity of the text, we should interpret the last kingdom in the same way that we interpret the first five. There's no indication in the text that we should treat the first five kingdoms literally and the last one non-literally or allegorically. The first four have been fulfilled literally in history, and so will the last two, both the kingdom that emerges just before Christ and the messianic kingdom itself. It's interesting, you know, just as the demons of Gadara and Luke 8 feared that Jesus would cast them into the abyss, Satan fears all of these events that we're talking about and being cast into the abyss. It's interesting to me that what Satan takes literally, many Bible interpreters take as non-literal. Satan fears a literal violent invasion of planet earth by the Son of God. And I would encourage people to get ready for it. It's coming because the Father has promised it to Christ. So it's God's promise to his son in Psalm 2. And it's this prediction here in Daniel 2 that makes Satan more than a little nervous. But still, Satan is unwilling to give all this up peacefully and he knows that if Jesus is going to come for it, and he most certainly will, it will create a conflict unparalleled in history. But seeing that Satan is also the most cunning of all of God's creatures, as Genesis 3, 1 says, he at least tried to deter Christ from taking such action on the earth. As a, a preemptive move, we find Satan trying to peacefully make some sort of compromise with Jesus, but it would only be compromise on Jesus's part. This occurred in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Here is what Satan did. It says, again, the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, these kingdoms are certainly Satan's to give. But what is so interesting is the location from which Satan showed Jesus all these kingdoms. The high mountain is reminiscent of Daniel 2 from where the stone, which is Christ, was cut out and would then crush all these kingdoms. Satan is acting preemptively. He wants to hand all the kingdoms over to Jesus prematurely, minus the cross and Armageddon, but on one condition. Jesus must worship Satan rather than the Father. It's like he was saying, listen, Jesus, we can skip all the violence, all the bloodshed, all of the death, I'll give you all that your daddy promised. All you have to do is worship me. Don't you know the end will justify the means? But Jesus doesn't budge, not here and not in the garden, and he will not relent when he comes back for his inheritance. He will crush Satan under his feet, just like Genesis 3.16 predicts. Things will get ugly before they get beautiful. Paul chimes in on all of this, and says that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. And then John says, and the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven through 10 and Revelation 20, verse 10. Jesus will inherit the nations. He will conquer the earth violently as the father declares in verse nine he says, the sun will break them with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And it's interesting, the children of Israel failed to cleanse the land of Canaan. But when Jesus comes, he will not fail to cleanse the earth as John foresaw in Revelation. Satan and every wicked thing will be banished to the lake of fire. But this prophetic promise, which is, somewhat dark it's it's ugly it's not without god's mercy god then he provides counsel to the rulers of the earth preceding the coming of christ and his earthly reign in verse 10 and 12 of psalm 2 he says now therefore be wise o kings be instructed you judges of the earth serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Because this righteous king will conquer with unstoppable might, submission is the only wise response. No ruler on the earth and no army can resist him. And so now is the time to serve the king. Now is the time to rejoice over him. Christ was judged violently in the place of sinners by which he secured the forgiveness of everyone who trusts in him. But when these days of grace expire, his mercy will be withheld and in its place a rod of iron. It it will never be too early to serve him, never too early to rejoice over him with fear and trembling. But this age of grace or, as your credit card company might call it, this grace period where the penalty is delayed will not last much longer. We are currently in the grace period where people can come to God through the Son. But this current age is pressed against the threshold of the next. That's what our text is telling us. This age of grace will not delay what God has already appointed, as Paul says. He says, God. Commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world according to what is right. He's given assurance of this to all by raising Jesus from the dead, Acts 17, 30 and 31. And so when he comes, if he's not embraced, if he is not kissed, as it were, he will administer his wrath. But notice how this is not some exertion of all of his powers. This will occur when his wrath is kindled, the text says, but a little. He he is an almighty sovereign king. Conquering the earth will be no strain upon the son of God, though man and Satan resist him with all their might. He will take it violently. He will recover it mightily, but he will do it effortlessly. So in keeping with God's counsel, I would plead with you, today is the day to serve him. Today is the day to worship and to rejoice over him. Indeed, today is the day of salvation. Do not be a fool, Psalm 2 would say. Repent and surrender to him. As the psalm ends, blessed or oh how happy are those who put their trust in him. What he's saying is that the believer has the blessed assurance that Christ has taken our punishment and he's cleansed us from all sin, delivering us from all wrath which is coming. And it is coming. As Paul would say, we have been appointed to salvation. We belong to him. And as Dan has recently discovered, he has been presented faultless before the throne. And as revelation plays out, the text says that we will not simply be receiving Christ with those on the earth. We will be returning with him to recover his prize. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for Again, Lord, the promises of your word. And Lord, not all of the promises in scripture are pleasant. Some of them are dark, we might even say. Some are violent. Isaiah 63 comes to mind, much of revelation. But Lord, in light of all that, we want to understand your wrath, your righteousness, your judgment like the angels do in the book of Revelation who at every turn, when it says they praise you, they're praising you for your righteous judgment upon the earth. Lord, it's coming. We need to be ready, and, and Lord, we want to be among those who would share the gospel so that we might help others prepare for it. So Lord, as we make ourselves ready for our groom, I pray, Lord, that we would be broadcasting the good news so that less people will be subject to the bad news. So Lord, help us, we pray. Grant us your grace. And Lord, again, I pray that as we go through this season of, of plague or whatever we wanna call it, Lord, that you would walk us through it and that you'd bring us back together soon. Watch after, Lord, my, my church family. See them through this. Bring us all back together. In Jesus' name, amen.